Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Well, if you had asked me when I was a little boy growing up at Trinity Presbyterian Church in North Hollywood, California, what the best part of the church service was, I would have said the donuts afterwards. In fact, that would have been my, ma- my answer all the way up to middle school when I finally stopped squirming and daydreaming and started paying attention to what was actually going on. To be honest, the little boy inside me still gets excited anticipating after-church snacks, even if they're an experiment. (laughs) Last summer, I visited St. Finbar's Cathedral in Cork City, Ireland. It's one of the most beautiful churches in a land filled with beautiful churches. I attended a service there. And in addition to the soaring architecture, the two things that I remember most were that worshipers didn't have to pay the tourist entrance fee, and afterwards they served scones, avoca raisin scones with strawberry jam. Well, I'm going back to Ireland again in August, and if my itinerary allows for another visit to Cork City, well, I think people choose a church for a variety of reasons. It's a good idea to ask yourself, what brought you here to Advent? And what keeps you coming back? For some, it's a sense of community, or the outstanding children's program, or the beautiful narthex, the outstanding music featuring Jacob Boyer on the Hammond organ. <laughs> that was great. Awesome processional. No, but, and you know, just the wonderful music that we have and the variety that we have and the many opportunities for prayer. Other churches make social ministries a primary focus, and some churches are all about sponsoring missionaries. I think that high up on the list for us here at Advent is that we value solid biblical preaching without getting caught up in the cult of personality, and also how Holy Communion is offered each week with joyful, amicable reverence. The Apostle Luke describes a healthy, well-balanced early church in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and of prayers. Like a great symphony, the Anglican style of worship, along with our sister Catholic and Orthodox churches, is built around these four movements. Today, I'd like to suggest that one of the precursors of our traditional worship was established by the resurrected Lord on Easter Sunday when he met up with two disheartened pedestrians who were going the wrong way. They needed to be gently picked up and turned around. In our tradition, we refer to this pillar of worship as liturgy of the word. It's followed by liturgy of the table, the Eucharist, Holy Communion, And that's also hinted at in today's gospel lesson. But of course, the full version of that is depicted on Monday, Thursday with the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. All right, so two followers of Jesus are hoofing it out of Jerusalem. One is named Cleopas or Cleopas. And Bible scholars think that the other person unnamed could have been, probably was his wife. 
It's a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they walk, they're trying to make sense out of what started out as the best Passover week ever, but now has turned into a confusing and chaotic mess. The disciples are in hiding. The Jesus phenomenon seems to have crashed before it even got off the ground. Cleopas and his wife are going home. Then the Lord appears and joins them in their trek. But like Mary Magdalene at the cemetery, they are prevented from recognizing him. Sup, he asks. That's my translation of the original Greek. Sup. They use a lot more words in the Bible. Cleopas and probably his wife are amazed that this stranger is oblivious to what's going on. Of course, Jesus already knows. He was there, right, center stage. But he wants to know their impressions. What are they taking from the Holy Week events? And they've got most of it right. Jesus of Nazareth, check. Mighty in word and deeds, check and check. A prophet, Eh, well, to be fair, a lot of people assigned that incomplete title to him. But at least they thought that he would redeem Israel, which is on the job description of a Messiah. So half credit? I'll give them half credit. The correct answer, of course, is Peter's Holy Spirit-inspired proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas recount that Jesus was condemned and crucified by the chief priests and rulers. And that's sadly true. I give them a 75% with points deducted because they've also heard about the empty tomb, but they don't believe in the resurrection yet. They'd heard about the empty tomb and the women who visited, uh, were visited by the angels who said that Jesus was alive. Now everybody is sure that the tomb is empty. But the disciples at this point of the story of the Gospels have not seen Jesus since his burial. So no one except Mary Magdalene really knows what to think. Everyone else is missing the most important part of the puzzle. Now some of you are going, wait a minute, but last week we had Jesus in the upper room and and even doubting Thomas, you know, which was eight days later. All of that happened after the events of our gospel lesson today. This encounter with the resurrected Lord precedes his appearance to the ten disciples and others in the upper room that Easter evening. Now, I get why Jesus would appear to Mary Magdalene in the cemetery. He was just fresh out of the grave. But why visit these two miles away from Jerusalem before dropping in to say hello to his closest friends? Here's what I think. Most of his flock was relatively safe, holed up in the upper room, like the 99 sheep in the parable, They're not going anywhere, but two little lambs have wandered off, and he wants them back in Jerusalem, which is ground zero for everything he sought to accomplish from the beginning. Does it bother you maybe a little bit that Jesus seems to prioritize these heretofore unknown and unnamed followers more than the big 12, minus Judas and uh, Thomas? Why else mess with the chronology of post-resurrection readings in the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm reminded of the parable of the day laborers, where those who started work last 
received the full daily wage, and the ones who were there from the beginning feel slighted. Jesus prioritizes the lost and misguided because of the urgency of their need. They were wandering away from what was going to become the church. Now, that doesn't mean he loves his lifelong followers any less, but I thought I was special, my pride whines. You are, Jesus replies, and so is everyone else. And so, still going in the wrong direction and having assessed Cleopas and his wife's strengths and weaknesses, Jesus lays out for them the whole plan of salvation history. The gospel says he began with Moses and continued through the prophets. Now, at first glance, that may suggest that he started with Exodus and Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses is credited with, credited with writing the first five books of the Bible, and that includes Genesis. That would include everything, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden and the fall. That's the beginning of our salvation history. That's when, up until the fall, there was no need for salvation. There was no fall. But immediately with the fall, Father said, I want my kids back. I want them back. They need to be reconciled to me. And that's when the plan begins. And that's when it unfolds. And it includes um, Adam and Eve. And then it goes to God's covenant with Noah and all of God's creatures. And it continues on to the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who became Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the chosen people who were rescued from starvation to go to Egypt, 400 years in captivity, then Moses comes to lead them to the promised land. So all of that, I believe, is included in salvation history because it's exciting and it's necessary and we can see God at work and his will being fulfilled. Jesus then continues to reveal God's plan to save the world and humanity through David his son Solomon and the building of the temple, a temple that would draw all nations unto himself, or at least was intended to. And the prophets, Isaiah, whom we heard from today, and Jeremiah, and the promises of a Messiah to come. But then also a couple of exiles and the destruction and rebuilding and destruction of the temple as well. Jesus, though, is giving much more than instruction. He's giving them interpretation. It's a disheartening story. Again and again, we fail to live up to our side of the covenant. But the Father is always faithful. Our disobedience, our rebelliousness, our stiff-necked stubbornness and unfaithfulness cannot, will not, and does not prevent his will from being accomplished. All of Scripture leads up to the fulfillment of Jesus the spotless Lamb of God, suffering and dying for the sake of those who had wandered away from God's unconditional love. Only through a perfect sacrifice offered in love once for all could he undo the effects of sin and ultimately conquer death. This is why some people have referred to the Bible as God's love letter to his children. Jesus gives Cleopas and his wife a glimpse 
of the big picture, a revelation. Yes, it's ultimately a portrait of the Son of Man. But they're in there too, and so are we. As Father Jordan once reminded us, we are not the heroes of our own story, but we are in the story. We are an essential part of the story. It's comforting to imagine that Jesus, perhaps unseen or unrecognized, is walking alongside us, especially when we're going in the wrong direction. But then, for him to take the time to, and I am copywriting and trademarking this phrase that I am coining today, to take the time to son of mansplain (laughs) the whole game plan and how everything fits together under the sovereignty of God, the Father, well, that boggles the mind. How my heart longs to experience that kind of revelation. It's an ongoing revelation. I get bits and pieces of it every Sunday when we come together. And sometimes when I read the Bible at home, too, as well. Cleopas and his wife describe how their hearts burned when the Lord opened the scriptures for them. I don't think that means they had heartburn or acid reflux. I think it means that the refiner's fire was kindled in their downtrodden spirits. And it not that what the liturgy of the word is meant to accomplish? Every time we gather, we immerse ourselves in the scriptures. And then someone who has studied and prayed over a particular passage preaches on it, hoping and praying that we will all be inspired by new insights, not just into God's plan but also then to experience his abiding love for us. C.S. Lewis wrote, It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. I want to apologize for not having a Tolkien quote in the service today. (laughs) When, When you think about Lord of the Rings as nothing else but walking, And this story has got a lot of walking in it. You'd think I could have found something, right? But I wanted to go with Lewis this time. Scripture is a powerful vehicle for revealing Christ. Christians are guided and strengthened by the word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Non-Christians are often persuaded into faith by reading the Bible. The Gideons is a whole ministry devoted to printing and distributing Bibles free to anyone who will take them. And I supported the Gideons for years. When I was at college, they were handing out the little uh, pocket-sized, it's the Psalms and and the New Testament and the Psalms, just handing them out to any college student who would take them. Mine, that was in the late 1970s. It's in the doorwell of my car in case I need it, in case I have it handy. But it kind of sits there because I've got my phone. (laughs) I can just type in, oh, where's 2 Timothy 3.16? Beep, 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 and I got it. But it's there. It's there. And someday maybe God will say, you need to pass this on to somebody. I said to one of them, well, what if... You know, they, they're in hotel, it used to be in hotel rooms and motel rooms. You'd come into this empty place, open the door, and there'd be a Gideon Bible there. Um, and I said, well, what happens if someone steals them? He said, that's great, then we replace it. And they've got a Bible. 
maybe they'll read it and learn about stealing. <laughs> We've all been touched by the word of God, haven't we? Feel free, raise your hand if you're bold. Raise your hand if a particular passage has given you a sudden thrill of inspiration or recognition or insight or understanding. Has it ever happened to you? It's the Holy Spirit making the word of God come alive in your heart. Now, keep your hand up or raise your hand again because everybody said, oh, is it Anglican to raise our hands? Okay, now, if the word of God has dramatically and permanently changed your life, your direction, your decisions about relationships or jobs or something like that that has changed your course, picked you up when you're going the wrong direction and set you right, will you be bold enough to raise your hand as well? I'm not surprised at all because of, this, of what this church is and what we value. I mean, you're right at home. That's what we believe here. This is why we give reading and preaching of Scripture a prominent place in our worship because it witnesses powerfully to Christ we too can receive a Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas-like grasp of how God is working in and through the world and through us, even through our sinfulness and disobedience sometimes as a world. But the liturgy of the word, good Bible preaching, isn't the be-all and end-all of Christian worship. Once when I was leading a church up in Evergreen, uh, we had a couple come to visit and at the passing of the peace, they started putting on their jackets and getting ready to go home. They'd come from a music and a message type church, Bible church tradition, and they thought the service was over once the sermon was completed. I assured them the best was yet to come. For Cleopas and his wife, the last few miles walking to Emmaus with this inspiring uh, stranger, I think just flew by. Next thing you know, they're home. Jesus has a little fun with them. Jesus is playing pranks. You read the post-resurrection uh, accounts of Jesus appearing, and you, don't, you tell me he's not playing peekaboo with us. Or whack-a-mole. I don't know. Maybe gonna, oh, there he is. Now he's not. There he is. Now he's not. It's hilarious. And so he's playing a prank on Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas. And uh, so he's going to just keep on going. And he wants to see what they're going to do. Well, naturally, they invite him to dinner, it's actually more than an invitation. The English Standard Version of verse 29 says, they urged him strongly, which for me means that one was pulling him in and the other was behind giving him a push. He was coming inside. You are staying for dinner. It's been a long day. It's been a long walk. And for what you've given us, you have to accept our hospitality. Let us wash your feet and then come sit at our table. We have avoca raisin scones with strawberry jam for dessert. But then the guest becomes the host and even the celebrant in the breaking of the bread. In fact, the wording of this passage features the exact same four verbs found in the story of the Last Supper and incidentally in the feeding of the 5,000. He took, blessed, broke, and gave. This is no after-sermon snack, like at my childhood Presbyterian church, which nearly was always, it was pretty much always music and message. Occasionally, we would have Holy Communion. This is the main course. This is true table fellowship, an intimate, comfortably formal sharing 
and mingling of our lives with the living Lord, the liturgy of the table. Jesus cracks open a loaf, and in that moment their eyes are opened and they recognize him. The exposition of the scriptures prepared Cleopas and his wife for a sudden perception of reality with a capital R, which comes in the breaking of the bread. Jesus didn't stick around once he opened Cleopas and his wife's eyes to the truth of his resurrection. The way I picture it was he takes the bread, he breaks it, their eyes are opened, he smiles at them, winks, disapparates, and then the pieces of the bread, that's a theological term, isn't it? Disapparate? <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> Depends on what's canon. Okay, the two pieces of bread are hanging there in the air for a second, and then boom, and he's gone. And where did he go? Well, he popped off to the upper room to visit his friends, to let them know that he was raised from the dead. Bishop Robert Barron says that ultimately, the means by which we understand Jesus Christ is not the scriptures, but the Eucharist. For the Eucharist is Christ himself, personally and actively present. Though the scriptures reveal God's plan for our redemption, it is our Lord's compassion for the world, even unto death, his sacrifice to save sinners, his unconditional love that we receive in Holy Communion. Bishop Barron's words could be a helpful corrective for churches that are all word and no sacrament. Maybe the road to Emmaus is the journey and the banquet table is the destination. We can receive both a rich understanding and experience of Jesus in reading, marking, and inwardly digesting the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. Then we can receive the benefits of his sacrifice, forgiveness, promises of eternal life that come through the living word that is blessed, broken, and given to us in his body and blood, the spiritual food and drink of new and unending life in him. For us at Advent, word and sacrament always go together. Seems to have worked for Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas, too. Although, it's amazing to me that even though they had just seen the risen Lord in their home, face-to-face, sitting at their table, the thing that Cleopas and his wife are most astonished by afterwards is how powerfully he brought the scriptures to life. Well, those two are definitely going to plant a church in Emmaus that focuses on the liturgy of the word. But first, they need to turn around and go back another seven miles to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what they've witnessed. Fourteen miles round trip. That's more than a half a marathon in flat sandals without socks. I have run two half marathons in my life, wearing the best shoes I could afford and even socks with individual toe pockets. And it still hurt. Really bad. Both times. It would take an awful lot. It would take Jesus to get me to go and do something like that again. For discouraged Cleopas and his wife, the first 5 or 10K coming up to Emmaus was likely a real slog until Jesus came alongside them. But on the way back, I'll bet they fairly flew in the zone all the way back to Jerusalem. And yes, Kim, I was thinking about you when I was writing this. Kim is a track coach, and we pray for you every week and for your kids, the kids under your care. 
and for anybody else who wants to actually run when nothing's chasing them. <laughs> it's already evening, the passage says. <laughs> and the hoax. Yep, yep, okay. It's already evening, the passage says, so they're going to arrive well after dark. Meanwhile, Jesus, whose glorified body is no longer limited by time and space, has already popped over to the upper room to reveal himself to the ten disciples present and all the other people who were there waiting. Now, the truth of the Lord's resurrection is confirmed. And the news that he is alive is even now spreading to the ends of the earth. I'd like to sum up this sermon with three questions. What might it be like for you to realize that Jesus is always walking beside you, even if you don't see him or feel his presence, and especially when you're going in the wrong direction? Do your mind and heart fill with divine light and warmth when you start connecting the dots and begin recognizing God's plan for our salvation as it unfolds throughout the Bible? And do you recognize your loving Lord in the breaking of the bread? Let's go back to the original question. What do you look forward to most when you come to Church of the Advent. Some of you travel long distances, passing who knows how many other churches to get here, home. Only a handful of us live within walking distance. Is it because we are committed to exploring the word of God sincerely, prayerfully, and with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Are you drawn to meeting Jesus at his table, entering into a mystical, intimate relationship with the living Lord through the sacrament? It's not an either-or situation. One leads directly to the other. And to be honest, I think we do both pretty well here. Now, like Cleopas and his wife, we have to go the extra mile to share our personal witness and testimony of the risen Lord, first with fellow disciples, preferably with coffee and donuts, experimental cupcakes, or scones. And then spread the good news of salvation and new life of Christ to all the ends of the earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.